Please do so. Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 53. Thank you guys for leading us this morning as we have the chance to sing praises to the Lord, about the Lord. I always appreciate you guys and the work that you put into this. Isaiah 53, this morning I want to read verses 7, 8, and 9, and then focus our thoughts primarily on those verses. This is God's word for us this morning, and here's what God says. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done uh, no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. You may be seated. Father, we are grateful to have this treasure of your word. For, Father, there is no word like your word. And, Father, our prayer is that now as we focus our thoughts upon your word, these words that we've just read, that by your spirit, you would be at work in our midst, in our hearts, in our minds, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we, we gather here to worship you, not simply to gain more information, but our prayer is that in meeting with us through your word, you would transform us. We would be changed by looking at these words. Where we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This summer, our scripture memory passage is Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Those 15 verses we are looking at a portion at a time. In fact, uh, these 15 verses really can constitute a, a song, a, a prophetical song. They were written some over 700 years before Jesus arrived, and yet they perfectly, accurately, carefully describe some important things concerning who Jesus is and what he has done. This song is a song of five stanzas, three verses apiece. And so this morning we... Look at the fourth stanza of our song, verses 7, 8, and 9. And uh, what struck me, first of all, as we uh, look at these words to begin with, is uh, as with the, the whole context of all 15 verses, they, they, they describe the, the work of Jesus who is identified here as the suffering servant. They, and we will be back again looking at the aspects of Christ's suffering. But, and, but yet what stood out in this passage was his response to the suffering that he experienced. Or you might even say his lack of response, his complete silence. 
Look at verse 7. Twice it's mentioned in verse 7. Yet he opened not his mouth. So he opened not his mouth. And then and then collecting really the same thought, worded just a little bit differently, but the same notion perhaps is that at the end of verse 9, and there was no deceit in his mouth. This morning we, we consider the, the silence of the suffering servant. We, we first of all want to look at the silence in the midst of his suffering. And then a second point that we'll consider is his silence in pursuit of of his submission. First, his silence in the midst of suffering. He opened not his mouth, so he opened not his mouth, and there was no deceit in his mouth. In verse 7, the notion of silence underscores that um, when, it, it, when it describes he opened not his mouth, that that doesn't mean he didn't verbalize anything. When we read through the Gospels, for instance, as he's literally hanging from the cross, he is speaking words to us. Uh, so he is talking, and yet what this describes by his opening not his mouth is that there is no aspect of revenge or retaliation while suffering. We, we see his perfect uh, commitment to obedience. Or even in verse 9 where it says, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. I think that really describes uh, his perfect innocence. There was no guilt or sin or deservedness in, in his suffering. Some people may suffer because they quote-unquote, got it coming to him. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about a suffering that displays uh, a pure obedience and a suffering that displays a perfect innocence. And in so doing, we, we bump into the same concept we've been bumping into all summer long. It really, what Isaiah is just r repetitively pressing into our hearts is... Uh, the sacrificial substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and yet, by the language of silence, we are once again awakened unto some of the beauties and glories of his substitutionary work. For as his um, uh, lack of retaliation and revenge in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of him being wronged, if you would, his obedience... Uh, in the midst of his suffering, his obedience will be substituted for us. His obedience becomes the status of all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you and I get a record of obedience in the sight of God? Well, certainly, we should strive for obedience as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But even our striving for obedience will not give an impressive record before a holy God. That doesn't mean we shouldn't desire that and want that and even put the work into achieving, trying to achieve that. But God will not be impressed. He will not set up and take notice and go, whoa, have you seen Joe? That's one obedient dude. 
No. And yet, you and I can stand before God with a record of perfect obedience to the law of God, to the righteousness of God, to the standard of God. And how do you and I get a record, a status of perfect obedience? We get that by trusting in Jesus because he earned, achieved, obtained a record of obedience and he gives that, gifts that to all who are trusting in him. That's, that's part of what we're describing here in this substitutionary effort, work, accomplishment of Jesus. We do not stockpile merits on our own. No, our merits have been abundantly, perfectly attributed to us through the obedience of Jesus. He was obedient to the point of going through suffering without opening his mouth. And certainly, secondly, when it says there was no deceit found in his mouth, it, it certainly describes uh, the innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there was somebody who had a legitimate right to speak up in the face of personal injustice, it was Jesus And yet, he didn't. Here is the perfect innocent one with no guilt, with no sin, with no deservedness, uh, who bears up under the punishment, as we've sang about, the, the very wrath, if you would, which we'll look at some more in a moment, and yet, how do you and I have such a possibility of a standard, a status of innocence before a holy God? Can you pull that off? Can you rig it so that you can say, I got this. I'm going to stand before God innocently. Well, the only way you could pull that off would be to trust not in yourself, but to, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The innocent one has gone before us. The innocent one has accomplished what he set out to accomplish. And now he gifts to us an innocence. Uh, in other words, no record of sin, no record of guilt. All who trust in Jesus have a record of obedience and have a record of innocence. Apart from trusting in Jesus, there is no acceptable standard that you and I could accomplish that would render us as labeled obedient before a holy God. There is no effort, no religiosity, no way we could pull this thing off that stand before a holy God and say, God, I'm innocent, lest, unless we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives to us his innocence, who gives to us his obedience. So while the sermon's not done yet, perhaps the most important part is now done, and that is, so are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Have you turned to him? Are, are, you, are, you, are you trusting in something religious? Are you trusting in your church affiliation? Are you trusting in that you're striving to be a, a good guy or good gal? Are, are, you, are, you, are, you, are, you, are you striving in your own mm, notions of re, religion and merit and righteousness? And thinking, I hope I am able to do this well enough to like maybe just barely get in. It's not how it works. How it works is that we turn from ourselves, we turn from our sin, we even turn from our own self-righteousness, and we throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus, and we trust only in Him who gives mercy, in fact, to all who have the sense to know they need mercy and ask Jesus for it. He in no way turns any of us away if we come to Him and, and ask Him. Verse 7 adds to that, speaking more of of just magnifying the impressiveness of his silence, both in terms of his obedience and his innocence in the midst of his suffering. Verse, verse 7 goes on to say, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. Here in this context, no doubt it's borrowing heavily, heavily from uh, the, the richness of the rest of the Old Testament. For instance, we just finished not too long ago a study in the book of Exodus. And uh, what looms large in kind of a climactic kind of way in the book of Exodus is, is when God is on the eve of rescuing Israel from Egyptian captivity, he, he instructs them to initiate this observance of Passover, which begins with the slaughtering of a lamb, and the blood of that lamb is painted on the doorposts of their homes, so that that night, the angel of death, when he visits the city, he passes over those who have the blood of the lamb painted on the doorposts of their homes. Uh, but for those who do not have the blood painted on the doorpost of our homes, he doesn't pass over he goes in and he takes out the firstborn. But the imagery that's being taught there is that, is that there is a lamb who substitutes the, the, uh, for them on their behalf the justice of God so that by faith as they paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts that the death angel passes over their house. Jesus is, is being predicted as being a lot like them, uh, those slaughtered lambs whose blood will be shed and who makes provision of, of trusting in Jesus has that blood painted on our souls, if you would. So that justice is satisfied. Amen. He was silent in that whole process. The only one who would have been qualified to speak up and say, wait a minute, what do you think you're doing? In Romans chapter 3, as Paul has built the case about the sinfulness of all of humanity, that, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that all deserve a, a just condemnation before a holy God. He says something I think is quite integral to this conversation about the silence of Jesus as it pertains to the absorption of justice. In Romans chapter 3, as he climaxes the, the sinfulness of humanity, he, he's, he, he describes that, that, that in making that case that, that every mouth may be shut 
in all the world held accountable to God. In that context, what he is saying is that when you and I stand before God, we won't have any um, legitimate claim that we can make to, about, about ourselves before a holy God that will convince him of anything other than our just condemnation before the bar, the standard of God's justice. Shut up! And yet the only one who could have spoke up did not speak up. For people like you and for someone like me and people like you who would have no claim to lay, shut up. He chose to shut up for us and for our salvation. For we would have no other grounds to speak up. John, when he sees Jesus in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, I, I think he, if, if you're paying attention, if you're mindful of the prophecies of Isaiah 53, with the richness of a, of a sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament when Jesus begins his public ministry and he comes to John to, to launch that through baptism. And John, in a, I think a jaw-dropping way, just says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is John helping us to connect the dots that John is saying, you know who Exodus was talking about? Do you know who Isaiah was talking about? Well, guess what? He's here to do what's been predicted he would do, to be the lamb that is led to the slaughter, to be the lamb whom before his shearers remains silent. No retaliation, no revenge. It's not that he was uh, unable to do that, incapable to do that. Remember when they came to arrest him in the garden that night and Peter draws a sword and starts to fight back. He says, I, look, I could have called the legions of angels down. We, we, could, we, we could take care of this situation right now. He could have enacted revenge. And it would have been, I think, just for him to do so. But it would have been damnable for us if he would have done so. The other thing I want to point out before I move on to the second point is um, how Luke in Acts chapter 8 uses um, uh, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. You remember, uh, Philip is, uh, is on the road, and he, and he bumps into this, we're told, an Ethiopian eunuch, heading home, I suppose. And, and uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading a scroll from Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53. And in fact, we're, we're literally told in, um, in these verses that the passage that, it, that he's explicitly reading when he bumps into Philip, he's, he's reading verses 7 and 8 from Isaiah 53. And, and, and the eunuch asks Philip, kind of 
What's, what in the world is this about? It, the eunuch asked Philip, about whom does the prophet say these words? Who are we talking about here? What's this Isaiah 53, 7 and 8 in reference to? And what I think is so interesting, and I think it's so, I don't know, I guess it doesn't take much to get me giddy, but, uh, but what, what, I, what Acts 8.35 says next. Remember, this is in the context of these verses that, that accentuate the silence of Jesus. He opened not his mouth. And yet, and yet what, what Luke wonderfully, creatively does is he says in Acts 8.35, and Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, beginning with Isaiah 53, 7 to 8, it says that uh, he told him the good news about Jesus. In other words, what, what's the implication of that for you in my life? Well, we worship and celebrate and rely upon and trust in a, a suffering servant who was silent. And, and, and yet the, the inverse implication of that is, is, is we have been rescued by a suffering servant who is silent. We cannot be silent about the suffering servant who was silent. He opened not his mouth. And yet, we are to open our mouth and talk about the one who opened not his mouth. You see, sharing the truth about Jesus, and here it says the good news, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, entails using words. Now, certainly our lives and the way and the attitude and the actions and the words uh, and the, uh, of our lives should reflect the, the reality of the gospel. But, but if we're going to share the gospel with people, we have to open our mouth. It takes words to communicate uh, the gospel, words that are rooted in the Bible. It says, that, and he opened his mouth, and starting with these verses, Isaiah 53, 7 through 8, and, and I don't mean by that you always and only have to start with Isaiah 53, 7 through 8, but we have to start with what the Scripture says about Jesus. We open our mouth, and we begin to explain things about Jesus that are rooted in and based in his word, explain things about what Christ did, who Christ is. Have you ever done that? Would you purpose even this week, Lord, give me an opportunity to open my mouth and talk about the one who opened not his mouth? Honestly, I can't think of anybody who's more opinionated than I am. Now, the only difference between me and you is all of my opinions are right. You're opinionated too. And what that means, being an opinionated kind of person, is uh, there's lots of things that we feel that uh, we have a, uh, a calling to make sure all the world knows about our opinions. Get on Facebook, talk to Send. There, this is what I think about this. I don't care what you think about that. And you know what? I don't post because I know you don't care what I think about that. 
So there's lots of things that we feel like, the Lord just really wants me to tell the world about my opinion. Look, open your mouth. But let's purpose that when we open our mouth, we are opening our mouth to share a word about the one who opened not his mouth. Second thing, silence in pursuit of submission. Now, and again, what I've already implied is that much of the suffering of Jesus was certainly uh, in the face and at the hands of wicked men. And, and yet, um, there's a whole other dynamic in play here as well, not to take anything away from that. Um, but uh, Jesus' silence is not just in the face of, uh, in, uh, of the hands of wicked men, but Jesus' silence is, is vertical. It's in the face of the hands of a holy God. Remember in verse 4, it says that he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 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 Um, in verse 6, last time we were together, it says, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of, our, of us all. Uh, looking ahead to next week, it'll, it'll talk about how it is his will. It was God's will to, to crush him. Even in verse 8 of our passage this morning, I think it's implied, but when it says, he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. I, I think that implies that, that it is God who has cut him off. He was cut off as you would cut off a wicked man. Get him out of this land. Land. He doesn't deserve to be, but to be here. That's how he was treated, as a substitute by God. He was stricken by God for the transgressions of the people. And yet there was no deceit found in his mouth. That was the only guy who didn't deserve to be kicked out of the land was the one who was cut off from the land. The only one who deserved to not be stricken for transgressions was the one who was, in fact, stricken for transgressions. Why? Because we're seeing that his silence was not just in the midst of suffering. His silence was in the, in the pursuit of submission. Philippians 2 reminds us, and speaking of Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or hung onto, but humbled himself and became a man, took on flesh, and he became, it says, obedient, obedient to the point of death, obedient to the point of death on the cross. There's, 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 there's no more humiliating way to have died as an act of obedience and submission than to succumb to, allow oneself to succumb to the heinous death of crucifixion. And yet he did that out of submission. In fact, the designs of the wicked men reappear in the first part of verse 9, and, and they, speaking of the humans who conspired to put Jesus to death, and they made his grave with the wicked. The Jewish leaders, upon the death of Jesus, planned to dump his body in a trash heap called Gehenna, just dump him out in the side of a hill. 
let him rot out there, what's left of his skin, to add further, if, if crucifixion does not humiliate one, we would add injury to insult and, and, and disgrace him on a whole nother level by just throwing him outside in the, in the atmosphere of, of a trash dump so, so that he would be humiliated not just in the manner of his death, but also in the, quote unquote, the manner of his burial. No, no burial, just throw him outside, let him rot out there, let the birds pick on him. And yet, well, it's kind of a, an awkward verse, verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. I think that introduces us to the, again, 700 years before this unfolds, we're already being told that the designs of the wicked men were to throw him out on a, on a trash pile, and yet it will be the providential designs of God to make sure he gets a proper, appropriate, honorable burial. And we see that unfold, where after, as Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea, who we're told was a, uh, a follower of Jesus, went to the authorities and requested that Jesus might be buried in his tomb, that he might receive an honorable and appropriate uh, uh, burial, or, already uh, indicating that, that, that God is at work even in the humiliation of Jesus to bring about the exaltation of Jesus. They wanted to toss him at the side of the hill in a trash dump. It's not too hard for God to override that and to make sure that our Lord was properly buried an honorable way, a noble way. How does that work out in terms of our lives? Well, if you're not careful, well, maybe if I'm not careful, maybe I should speak for myself. If you're not careful, this last point I want to make will sound contradictory to the first point that I wanted to make. And that is the first point I want to make is that Jesus was silent when he had the right to open his mouth. And now as followers of Jesus, we are to open our mouths to talk about the one who was silent and did not open his mouth. Now, this point I want to make sure I'm shifting gears is as Jesus was like a lamb to the slaughter, as Jesus bore up under this suffering as an act of submission and obedience, did not retaliate, did not seek revenge, did not, if you would, fight back. What's the implication for us and for our lives? Well, while we are to open our mouths to talk about the one who opened and not his mouth, we are to not open our mouths as an act of self-defense. Freddie read to us a passage from uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, and in, for, for instance, in verse 36 uh, of Romans chapter 8, it sounds a lot like the very language and description of Isaiah 53, 7 through 9, and it is, and yet ex it explicitly borrows from a, another passage in Scripture, uh, Psalm 44, 22. It, it says there, and as Freddie read it to us, it says, speaking in the context of suffering, that you and I as followers of Jesus, in other words, the ones who follow the suffering servant, should not be surprised when they're suffering in that path. And so he says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
In other words, as followers of the slaughtered lamb, you and I may taste and face and experience this issue of suffering our own way. Not suffering in a redemptive way that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, but as those who name the name of Jesus, we may walk through experiences in life of persecution and affliction at the hands of the wicked. And yet even in Romans 8, that whole context of saying, no, um, for your sake, for Jesus' sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are like sheep uh, to be slaughtered. In that context, we are reminded, as Freddie reminded us, but you know what? Even if we are uh, slaughtered like sheep as followers of Jesus, the slaughtered Lamb of God, nothing no persecution will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No, in fact, we will be more than conquerors to him who, uh, through him who loves us. In other words, it resets uh, that, that if we are attacked as followers of Jesus, if we are wronged as followers of Jesus, then in this case, we don't open our mouth. We keep our mouth shut. Because we're following the one who opened not his mouth. Or the way Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 23, who, who, who in fact quotes Isaiah 53, 9, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Peter reminds us, uh, he says in this context, be subject to your masters. This is a wonderful, this is a very intriguing, in other words, he's saying in that day and age, people who were slaves, maybe, maybe not the same kind of slaves that there was in colonial and early American history, but, but slaves nonetheless, servants be subject to your masters, not only the good and gentle ones, but also to the unjust. In other words, if your master was a jerk, then Peter tells us to that we are suffering unjustly. But he says that's a good thing. But if when you are good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he says, for Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, leaving you an example that we would walk in, that, in those steps, in his steps, in that pattern it says that who committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. If someone attacks you for living righteously, for living a life of obedience, for living a life that seeks to please the Lord Jesus Christ, if, if you're in someone's uh, cross site because of that, then, then we, we don't fight back. If we are treated unjustly, then we don't pull the revenge card or press the retaliation button. We endure it. We walk through it. Because in that context, while we are to open our mouths to speak of the one who opened not his mouth... On the other hand, when we are suffering unjustly, when we are mistreated, 
we open not our mouths as followers of the one who is our exemplar, who opened not his mouth. Now, I'm speaking in very, very broad strokes here. I, I'm, 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 not I'm, I'm not talking about things that would maybe be criminally or illegally done to you, that you, that you don't have any recourse to appeal to legal authorities. I, in other words, I could, there's a whole host of caveats I could have there. Uh, but I'm talking in, in a broad, general, sweeping terms, and that is don't be surprised if we are earnestly following Jesus and living according to his word, that as followers of the suffering servant who was silent in the face of his sufferings, that our calling too would be to be silent in the face of suffering. Knowing as Roman remi Romans reminds us that even in the face of the most heinous persecution, and harassment and silence, we are still held by God. For ironically, the one who was silent in his trials and at his death and even in his burial is the one who at just the right time in God's plans will speak up for us. We need not speak up for ourselves. He will speak up for us with just a simple assertion, this one's mine. He belongs to me. I will get him safely home. I will protect him. I will hold him. He is right in my hand, and I am in my Father's hand, and no one is able to pluck them out of my hand. So we can be silent because we are in the hands of the one who was silent for our salvation and the one who when he's ready will speak up for us in our salvation father thank you for your word there's no word like your word for it points us to jesus for there's no one like jesus and father we marvel this morning as we have sought to know more about who you are and how that unfolds and impacts in our lives and father our, our simple thought of departure would just simply be that you would cause every heart to, to look to Jesus this morning, to trust only in Jesus, that we would uh, relish the one who was silent for us and for our salvation. And Father, now when we now open our mouths in a moment and sing, May we sing of the wonderful glories of your amazing grace. For you are so good to us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.